Here at Mountain Dew, we'd like to remind you, you got to know what's important and what's not important. Knowing how to tie a tie, not important. Keeping a diary, not important. Trying all the different bold flavors of Mountain Dew, important. Experience the boldest flavors on earth. Do the Dew. At Mountain Dew, we'd like to recognize the number zero for making Mountain Dew Zero Sugar possible. You have no reason not to try it, as in zero. Get it? Crack open an ice-cold Mountain Dew Zero Sugar. It's zero sugar, all due. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on the Mutual Broadcast Network, Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, and IPBN Radio Network. If you'd like to send an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV, and our main website, well, when it comes to the radio, that is, www.exoneradio.com. My guest this hour is Professor Antonio Paris. He is a professor of astronomy at St. Petersburg College in Florida. Additionally, he is an astronaut candidate for Project Possums, a suborbital mission supported by NASA's Flight Opportunities Program, the director of the Planetarium and Space Program at the Museum of Science and Industry, and the chief scientist at the Center for Planetary Science, a source outreach program promoting astronomy, planetary science, and astrophysics to the next generation of space explorers. Professor Paris, moreover, is a 2015 graduate of NASA's Mars Education Program at the Mars Space Flight Center in Arizona at the Arizona State University. Joining me now is Professor Paris. And Professor, how are you tonight, my friend? I'm doing pretty good. Can you hear me well over there? I can hear you. It sounds like you're not that far away. Perfect. So tell me, what is what is new with you, and what is new in the, in the world of space flight, in the world of NASA, in the world of space exploration? Oh, well, for uh, NASA is basically centered on, for the next few years, in 
planetary exploration. Uh, we're looking at uh, Mars, Pluto, and uh, even a mission to Venus. So it looks uh, mm. pretty exciting for the next 15, 20 years. So lots for us, for uh, the astronomy community to uh, keep us busy. Professor, what is the what is the draw of, of, of Mars? I understand the... Uh, who is it? The the president of SpaceX want, says that he can have a mission to Mars completed in the, in the next couple of years. I think the draw to Mars is our uh, human instinct to continue exploration. You know, five hundred, six hundred years ago, um, Christopher Columbus uh, and the uh, explorers from those days. You know, moved forward. They crossed the immense oceans uh, against all odds, and we're here today because of that, I guess. Eventually, I think we basically reached out to everywhere we can geographically on this planet, mm -hmm. and that instinct and urge to continue to explore uh, is is making us move outside the planet. We can't go to Venus because uh, Venus and Mercury are hostile environments. Mars, not so much. It, it's not as friendly as Earth. Right. But we can still go there. You know, uh, if if we have submarines and, and spaceships in orbit, spacecraft in orbit, I think a, uh, a self-sustained mission to Mars is not that difficult. Um, the hardest part of going to Mars is the the expense. It's very expensive to go to Mars. Would you say that with today's technology, the a, a trip to Mars would be a one-way trip for the occupants of that craft? I don't think so. I think we have we have the, uh, the necessary uh, engineers, the technology, the brains uh, to make a spacecraft visit Mars, um, hang out for about a year and a half until we're back in in alignment, mm -hmm. and return back. Uh, and we have the technology to. Uh, to uh, extrapolate lots of the resources that we have that are already on the Martian surface, uh, including a little bit of oxygen, hydrogen, and perhaps even water, all the things that we need. So if we plan it carefully mm -hmm. and if we send, you know, for the first few years, the food and water and uh, all the equipment required prior to getting there, um, it's basically one long camping trip, you know, um, we'll send the crew over there and they can come back. All right, Professor, please stand by. Exxon Nation, our guest this hour is Professor Antonio Paris. His website is www.planetary-science.org or aerial-phenomenon.org. And the professor and I will be back talking about NASA, UFOs, space exploration, and much more. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Exonation, Professor Antonio Paris is our special guest. And, um, you know, looking at the accomplishments that have been carried out by scientists like yourself, Professor, and the engineers and the, the mind 
grouping that goes on within the scientific community, the, the planetary committee, uh, the community, as well as the as well as the ex- exploration community. It's it's just so vast, and yet there are those who actually want to say that, you know what, it wasn't uh, the humans that came up with this engineering. It's all from the UFOs and the spacecraft that we reversed engineered. As a member of the scientific community, what is it? Was there extraterrestrial engineering that has been implemented into present-day spaceflight, or is this just a bunch of bunk? Well, um, the my answer would be that I don't know. I have per, my personal uh, opinion is I don't have any proof whatsoever to suggest that any of these any of the uh, technology that we have out there is derived from extraterrestrial uh, uh-huh. civilization intelligence. Um, what I can say is that we do have a lot of smart people. You know, we we, we have people that can create really cool technology, everything from the iPhone uh, to these uh, self-driving cars yeah. today. Um, but who knows? You know, there's, there's a lot of great conspiracies, but unfortunately those conspiracies, um, I like to call a wilderness of mirrors. No matter where you look, um, the, the, the rabbit hole gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And uh, I just don't see any – I would like to – you know, uh, take everyone's imaginations and put them all together and to mm-hmm. suggest, hey, this possibly could have been uh, technology recovered from either uh, extraterrestrial craft or conspiracies among governments and uh, extraterrestrial life. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's something that we can all fantasize about. It's, uh, it's a lot of claptrap that really leads to nowhere. We really don't have that proof. We have a lot of great stories. We have a lot of uh, deathbed confessions. Right. Um, we have a lot of alleged uh, witnesses and what I like to call anecdotal information, um, not anecdotal evidence like some suggest. So it's just going to continue to be lots of great stories and until my personal, uh, I guess, what's a good word I'm looking for, not opinion, but when I actually see a spacecraft mm-hmm. or evidence of thereof, at the Smithsonian or some museum, then we can uh, finally have the answer. But right now, it's um, just a lot of great stories. You, sir, um, are a former U.S. Army intelligence officer, infantry officer, paratrooper. You were awarded the Bronze Star Medal for Valor in Iraq. You're also the author of two books, Aerial Phenomena and Space Science. Uh, You're a certified Patty scuba diver and dive master. And you're a professional member of the Washington Academy of Sciences and the American Astronomical uh, Astronomical Society. So, so ask you know. Let me ask you this question, and mm-hmm. no disrespect meant whatsoever. Why is a scientist like you, with all your credentials, studying UFOs, and doesn't the study of UFOs as a as a very well and highly respected scientist like yourself? derail your reputation as a scientist no it does not you know if you look at my my entire background there are a lot of chapters in in my life story uh and that is a a result of my dad inspiring me to do as many great things as possible in my life um my father basically spent his whole life uh farming and then his uh his later life teaching and he that was great for him 
But he told me, you only live once and you need to do as many things as you can. So I joined the service. Mm -hmm. I uh, was server of combat tours, uh, became a scientist, um, was in the intelligence community for, for almost 10 years. So that's what I wanted to do. Lots of chapters, lots of great adventures in my life, which all culminated to what I like to do now, which is astronomy. My, my, you know, if you look at all my careers, Army, college, mm -hmm. uh, intelligence community, I still always wanted to be uh, involved in space science. And, and that's where that led to today. But when I look at the UFO phenomena, I don't look at it from some crazy crackpot perspective. I look at uh, how the phenomena has evolved. I look at it from a scientific perspective. And for the most part, most of the scientists and astronomers that I work with understand how I approach this phenomena. And believe it or not, most scientists are, are uh, closet UFO lovers. I'm sorry to say that, but, you know... Um, I know so many re reputable, respectable scientists right. that look at this phenomena from, a, you know, in, from the the, the uh, comfort of their own privacy. And uh, but you know, from my perspective, I don't really care because I'm looking at this phenomena from a from a nuts and bolts perspective. If there are a thousand cases out there, I only look at one or two mm -hmm. that attempt that appear to be highly credible. All right, and, and, professor. That's it. and the people that I surround mm -hmm. myself with, including in the aerial phenomena team, are highly respected. All right, so let me ask you. Let me ask you this: engineers and scientists as well. All right, let me ask you this thing: How do you do things differently as a tri as a trained scientist, as well as the other members of your team who are professionals? How do you do it differently than from, let's say, another that's, that's, UFO group? The key, or the first thing that we do is that we don't entertain and, and we venture off the the usual um, suspect. We stay away from these from these crazy conventions. We we don't we don't you know we stay away from mm -hmm. all these groups that have only one thing in common, and that is to spread the conspiracies. And we we focus our attention more with groups that are highly reputable like uh, skeptical organizations um, scientific organizations that uh, like uh, New Fork for example National UFO Reporting Center which is highly regarded um, one of the oldest as well UFO investigative uh, organization and more importantly we follow a very strict protocol an investigative process that has been derived and shaped from uh, FBI investigations manuals, police investigation manuals, weather phenomena investigations, and we 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 spent four or five years refining that process, <clears throat> and that's and that's basically what we've been doing and spreading the word as well. So I go I go to local UFO uh, meetings, mm -hmm. we tell them what we do, and I think what helped us out was my first book, Aerial Phenomena. If you read it, it's basically an investigative manual that 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 identifies our processes involved and using the scientific method, the, the actual scientific method of investigating any type of phenomena. You recently published a paper suggesting comets were actually responsible for the wow signal. Can you elaborate on that? Well, uh, be careful with that. I said that it's a possibility, that it's a hypothesis. And I, I beg to differ, sir. I beg to differ on the information you sent us. 
Um, so Num- in, in 1977, um, the wow signal was detected. And at that time, radio astronomy was mm-hmm. basically in its infancy stage. We didn't know about the com- uh, these are two-ledge comets that were in the area. Um, we didn't really understand the, uh, the hydrogen phenomena that was, that was coming out of the center of the galaxy. And I think most radio astronomers today, after 30, 40, 50 years of, of this mystery, excuse me, of this uh, unresolved mystery, are basically honing in that this is most likely a natural phenomenon. Um, when you look at the actual location of the uh, signal, it's death smack in the constellation Sagittarius, which is pointing towards where there's a lot of hydrogen. Mm-hmm. But when I uh, did a little research and, and did some further investigative analysis, I also discovered, learned that at that area, in those areas, there were two comets. And those comets uh, potentially could have been the source of the hydrogen. So, which is why I call them candidates. So, and for me to prove this hypothesis, yeah. I'd have to look at the comets when they come back around in 2017. All right. So, when you said in the information you sent us on January the 26th that uh, what number seven was, you recently published a paper suggesting comets were responsible for the wow signal. Mm-hmm. That that is an error. Uh, it's probably uh, a little lucrative error that I made, okay. but if you actually read the entire paper, um, it is it is uh, the conclusion that, I, that we added is that the two, con- the two comets are potentially the uh, the source of the wow signal, and that we need to test the hypothesis before we can uh, definitively say that they were comets. As a as a ufologist, as a scientist, as an astronomer. Um, as a former member of the intelligence community, what is your take on the Phoenix Lights? Phoenix Lights is rather interesting. Yeah, uh, there's basically, from what I understand, two two really separate, widely reported events. Um, one was the so-called uh, events downtown that were allegedly flares, according to the Air Force uh, investigative um, findings. And then... Um, Something that I don't think were flares because people in the, in the dozens reported seeing what appeared to be a boomerang, a uh, large boomerang uh, the size of a football field um, that was, I believe, I think, northeast of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. That looked nothing like flares. So I'm more interested in the actual boomerang than the alleged flares. And I don't know what that was. Could have been. It could have been extraterrestrial. It could have been something man-made. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of military bases in the, yeah. in the four, what do they call it, the four uh, areas. So we don't know what it was. We, we you know, in the, what's interesting about this case is that we do have a lot of witnesses. Right. Um, and they all basically corroborated the same story of what they saw. So that makes it for an interesting case. Once again, as an astronomer and a scientist, why are we going back to the moon? I think going back to the moon is basically because the the uh, natural resources there that we can um, exploit for be- for all intents and purposes. The helium three that's on the lunar surface yeah. is a great non radioactive isotope that can be used for clean fusion. Uh, I think the estimate is that one ton of helium three uh, is worth about one billion dollars, and more importantly can actually power a country like the United States for one year. So when you see countries like uh, uh, China, Iran, excuse me, China, India, and Russia heading back to study the lunar surface, 
I think this is a uh, thing more of an economic Sign of the thing. Times. Than, uh, All right, else. Professor, please stand by. We have to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Exonation Professor Antonio Paris is our guest. Planetary-science.org and aerial-phenomenon.org. And we'll both be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. My name is Rob McConnell. Don't go away. Explanation. Don't forget, after the Exxon, Monday through Friday, my friend Jeremy Scott takes you on an adventure in his show, Dark 30. That's right here on the Mutual Broadcast Network. And then Saturday and Sunday on the Mutual Broadcast Center. Here at Mountain Dew, we'd like to remind you, you got to know what's important and what's not important. Knowing how to tie a tie, not important. Keeping a diary, not important. Trying all the different bold flavors of Mountain Dew, important. Experience the boldest flavors on earth. Do the Dew. At Mountain Dew, we'd like to recognize the number zero for making Mountain Dew Zero Sugar possible. You have no reason not to try it, as in zero. Get it? Crack open an ice-cold Mountain Dew Zero Sugar. It's zero sugar, all dew. The one and only Wilda Wiaka and her show, The Science of Magic. For more information about the Mutual Broadcast Network and its great programming, visit their website, www.mutualbroadcast.com. My guest this hour is Professor Antonio Paris, and um, always great having you with us, Professor. Great. Oh, there How you are. are. You doing? We're, we're doing great. You know, it's a Friday. <laughs> it's a Friday night. The summer is here. Go outside. Look at the stars. And I often wonder if I'm looking out into the stars. Is somebody looking back at me? That is a possibility, and that's a great question. Someone actually asked, uh, asked me a similar question mm-hmm. a couple of days ago that we are looking for uh, extrasolar planets out there, but we are actually a biased species. You know, we're looking for Earth like planets that are similar to ours. Right. Um, so the question begs if there's an extraterrestrial civilization out there, that's completely different from us. Let's say they uh, breathe mm-hmm. cyanide and Ugh. their gravity is 100 times bigger. Right. And I'm just, you know, throwing crazy figures out there. What would they do if they actually discovered Earth? My, my uh, response would be they would probably look at our planet and say it's inhospitable and continue looking forward for something different. Yeah. That- so... We don't know what's really out there. My personal opinion is there has to be, excuse me, Sure. there has to be life yeah. out there. Uh, we just don't know what type of life. I've had Seth Shostak on the show many times. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, Seth's a, Seth's a great guy. He's got a great sense of humor. And the next time you're talking to him, ask him about his electric banana. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but, you know, I've asked Seth on many occasions... How do you know that the people that you're looking for actually 
have the capability or their technology has surpassed what our equipment can find. Yeah, you you have to look at it again from a human anthropomorphic bias. Humans uh, are, as far as we know, the only species that invented everything from that apple pie that mm -hmm. we bake every week, the iPhone, and radio communications. It's based off everything we know regarding human math um, and our ten yeah. fingers. Listen, Professor, so, I... there could be life out there that could have paralleled everything we have done, mm -hmm. or they are way far advanced than us. Yeah. You've been to the Skinwalker Ranch and Area mm -hmm. 51. Can you please describe to our listeners what Skinwalker Ranch is and what Area 51 is? And then, can you give us your comment, your opinions on those two locations? Yeah, so I love investigating great folklore and... Uh, <laughs> Skinwalker Ranch is a location out in Utah, mm -hmm. and in this case, it's just off the Ute Reservation. And there's been for at least, I think my research showed, uh, at least to the late 60s, a uh, smorgasbord of strange phenomena. Everything from uh, UFOs, uh, alien abductions, witches, black triangles, uh, werewolves, Bigfoot. Wow. You can, you you can name it and it was there, even the chupacabra. And so we went out to, to investigate this phenomena at the ranch and uh, we saw a couple of strange orbs and some shadows, but uh, it was a rather interesting place to look at. The, the whole uh, theory is, according to local experts, is that all of this that I just mentioned mm -hmm comes from one specific entity and uh, John Alexander out of Las Vegas calls this the um, uh, sentient phenomena or the known as the trickster that it can transform itself to whatever it wants based on what you want it to be so if there's a uh, person out there looking for a werewolf Bang. it will manifest itself as a werewolf if you're looking for uh, UFOs It'll Bang. manifest itself to UFOs. As a and sign, and uh, as the local legend is that all this is from uh, the Ute tribes, the old uh, reservation that's there, and uh, basically they think that's what it is. It's uh, spirits from the uh, ancient uh, Native Americans mm -hmm. that are manifesting itself to whatever you want it to be. All right, but as a scientist, a trained scientist, a decorated mm -hmm. member of the military a 10-year veteran of the intelligence community, as an astronomer, astronaut candidate. Like, <laughs> I'm not talking to Mickey Mouse here. I'm talking to somebody that I respect. When you yeah. look at all this stuff, what's your take on it? My specific trip was only looking at what the, uh, one of the largest phenomena there highly reported were these orange orbs. And uh, the local scientists thought, thought that this was ball lightning or uh, atmospheric phenomena. And that's why I went down there. You know, I went down there with, with truckloads of scientific equipment to try to study this, uh, this light phenomena. And the other was, was just, you know, it's just giggles for me. You know, I, uh, I wasn't looking for werewolves. I wasn't looking for uh, aliens. It was basically to study this, uh, this uh, atmospheric phenomena. And we, we detected one orb, which we weren't able to explain, but uh, we did everything, radiation detection, light detection, all types of, we, you know, all the scientific process involved to study this phenomena. And the other stuff, um, the other legends that were there, 
I was more there for entertainment. Alien abductions. The two that come to mind whenever you ask anybody about alien abductions, Betty and Barney Hill and then Travis Walton. Yeah. What's your opinion, sir? Well, Travis Walton is actually a good friend of mine, and, and I actually met him about four or five times already. Mm-hmm. And he understands my opinion of him, that I think something did happen to him. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, he knows that uh, he really has no proof. My personal opinion is that I have to stay away from alien abductions because the, the few that we have investigated, and that's just a few that I investigated, that we had to be careful because these people were suffering from some type of traumatic uh, experience. Whether One it was the- aliens or not, when they report to me that they were kidnapped, right. that they were raped, that they were taken from their own free will, that to me disqualifies me from investigating it because I'm not a medically trained doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And uh, the few colleagues that I do have that do this kind of stuff, I tell them, be careful. You're trading on dangerous waters. Yeah, because Travis Walton a- was yeah. Travis Walton was, uh, was examined by three psychiatrists and the lead yeah. psychiatrist, mm-hmm. Dr. Rosenbaum, said yeah. that, and I'm just paraphrasing here, that Travis Walton believes that this happened, even though it didn't happen, and he pointed to a psychosis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in the times that I sat down with Travis Walton, he told me these. I'm sitting and listening to him. I'm saying, I believe he's telling the truth. Something mm-hmm. happened to him. Yeah. Um, could it be aliens? It could be aliens. It could have been a military experiment, or it could have been him, you know, smoking some serious stuff. I don't know. <laughs> But he, he had an experience I'm not going to yeah. take away from him. I, I've never set out to debunk him. And and uh, the same thing with other people that yeah. have been allegedly abducted. Something happened to them. And they've gone through several credible, I guess, and dedicated psychologists and doctors and psychiatrists. And they all believe that something did happen to them. But I tell my team, listen, um, this is not something that we should be qualified to do. We the, And the last time we did this, we, we we had we had to call the police department because the alleged abductee was trying to commit suicide. And we were like, okay, we have to stop there. We have to yep. call the authorities. This guy needs some serious medical attention. And that's what we did. And uh, and from this point forward, I told my team, listen, if, if we get an abduction case, we'll take the information and we'll contact local people that we know mm-hmm. that deal with these kinds of uh I understand what you're saying 100% because going back, this must have been the year 2000. Mm -hmm. I was at News Talk 610 CKTB where we did the show from. My producer at the time was Martin Sherrod. And Martin, you know, we used to have a like a messaging system on the computers between the the master control and the studio while we were on air. While we were off air, we'd chat. He said, uh, you better take this caller, sounds important. So I took this person as the next caller, and they were basically, they were basically telling us that they were, they were considering, considering committing suicide because they believed that they had been implanted by alien implants. Nobody would believe them. So while I was talking to the person on the phone, Martin got a hold of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in B.C. because this listener was in B.C., and they went to the house, and they were actually able to intercept the uh, call. And yeah, they, you know, we because had a these, similar situation. Yeah, exactly. From the uh, hotel room. Yeah. 
and and the guy was screaming aliens was in his room that yeah. he was going to shoot everyone then shoot himself and i was like okay stop this uh we called the police department and uh, they were thankful i don't know what happened to the guy i'm i'm hoping that you know that he's okay but i we could have just had a string of bad luck you know, out of the dozens of cases that we we looked at yeah. abductions a lot uh, i would say over half of them these people were not stable and required some type of uh, psychiatric attention. So again, I, I'm I'm with you on that one too. We have to be careful, and we cannot lead these guys into pseudo things like uh, hypnosis and all those things that are pseudoscience, according to the mainstream scientific community. As a scientist yourself, how do you look upon hypnosis? Are you called it a pseudo science? Do you well, think that that's that is that is the the the, uh, the term that's used by mm -hmm. mainstream science? It's, right. it's pseudoscience because it, it's not really allowed to be used in a lot of situations, including the court of law, science. Sure. But um, when you've got these people who claim to be trained hypnotists who are who are dealing, in my opinion, with fire, you know, because if the person believes and they open up, they can actually cause more harm than good now this is just my own personal belief why are they allowed to practice this well first of all you have to make sure you have to remember that most of the hypnosis regarding these subjects are usually voluntarily and mm, okay. and if you look if you go to any of these and this is why we stay away from these conferences uh, a lot of this is is a kind of force people to do these kind of things they have these these like hypnosis special groups and yep. these abduction only for forums and they i'm sorry to say this but they bring a lot of these people because it brings people through the doors um but it's very it's a very dangerous thing and, and any legitimate doctor or psychiatrist will tell you that hypnosis just does not work it, it basically brings false memories um, and it brings false, you know, false belief spectrum. So we have to be really careful with that stuff. And it seems that the UFO community has their own UFO hypnosis uh, specialists that they use who, number one, they believe in UFOs. Therefore, they could actually lead the session to yeah. whatever, whatever when, conclusion when, they when want. You're leading the, when, when your own uh, interrogator mm -hmm. leads the witness, that, that becomes basically, it breaks the excuse, the, 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 uh, the actual evidence um, and they're really I don't know maybe you can answer this for me is oh, there course. an actual clinical le uh, legality or license regarding hypnosis I mean is this something you get your mm. PhD in or is this is this again well, like a pseudo clap track well, well you know my, my first of all my opinion of the PhDs today that if you don't go to a recognized university if you do not mm. do your dissertation if it doesn't take you four to eight years to get your PhD, well, you can go online, spend 250 bucks from an organization, they'll give you a PhD. Though The internet PhDs, in my opinion, are piled, PhD, piled higher and deeper. <laughs> Whereas I believe that the internet has taken a lot of credibility away from people who have spent years learning, proving themselves, learning, mentoring, and that these people who just take these online courses, I'm sorry, I don't give them any credibility whatsoever. Yeah, you know, I, I, I did it the old-fashioned way. Yeah. I had to go to school. I had to write a thesis. And, and, and 
my my thesis doctor had a you know I I went through three different uh, arguments yeah. to, to get that approved. Um, it's a little different now, you know. There is a uh, you can go through two or three years and yeah. uh, get a degree, which is okay as long as it's from a reputable school and you still do your your uh, um, your internships and things yeah. like that. You know, but uh, yeah, you can go on any given website now and get your you know PhD and you uh, there's actually you can get like PhDs now in ufology from non-accredited schools. Obviously, that's and, where the PhD stands for piled higher and deeper. It's just like going on the internet and getting um, you know a reverend in front of your name. I did this oh, one yeah. day on the show, <laughs> and all my three dogs now have reverends in front of their name. Like, come on. You know, you get these people who come on when we're talking about ghosts and their reverend this, bishop that. Yeah. First question I ask is, what seminary did you go to? Well, I didn't go to one. I, I went to such and such. Uh, I belonged to such and such a search. A church, I'm sorry. So what do we do? We check them out on the internet. Yeah, if you, I think I think if you want to be regarded as at least credible, is you you have to get the education out of the way. And then more importantly, in my business, mm -hmm. you, you have to publish. You have to publish from blind peer review, yeah. uh, do the hard work, submit it. And I, I've done publications where they were rejected, and I had to go back to the drawing board. Sure. Um, but you know, public peer review publications is is what um, shapes your credibility, and, and that's what I've been doing for the last um, close to eight years now. I, re I I don't think you're old enough to remember this, but. When I was going to school and when I was taking my courses, I went to something called a library. Oh, of course. <laughs> you know, and they used to have something in their walls filled with something that we call books. Mm -hmm. And you had to do something called research. Not yeah. like today. And I think that what we're doing with... What we're doing and making it so easy for people to zip through the educational system is going to bite us on the butt really hard in the future. I, I've actually shaped most of my uh, my uh, syllabus that way. So my when my college students come in, they mm -hmm. they have to do the research the hard way. Like they physically have to go out and study the night the, the night sky right. and look at the constellations. And I don't make it easy for them to go on the internet and you know and look at the night sky that way. So uh, they have to go to the library and look at specific books that I chose. Yep. They have to go out in the night hey, sky. Hey, professor, I hate to do this, but I've got to take my final break. Please stand by, my friend. Great. All right, Exo buddy. Exo Nation, our good friend, Dr. P I should say professor, not doctor. Professor Paris Antonio is our special guest, and we'll both be back on the other side of this break as we wrap up this hour here in the X-Zone from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest this hour, Professor and Professor Antonio Paris. Here's a couple of websites: planetary-science.org and aerialphenomenon.org. First of all, uh, Professor, always great talking to you. It's great having you back on the show. But I have to ask you something: uh, what, are, what are your what are your feelings, uh, and what do you think 
is the present status of the UFO culture? I think the UFO culture is seriously in dire uh, needs. If, if I look at the, a lot of these websites that I was looking at mm -hmm. just a few minutes ago, they're all begging for money. Um, the last conference I went to about three years ago, I swore to myself it would be the last one because it was nothing but a major circus. People running around with uh, green face paint, uh, I'm abducted t-shirts, selling whatever garbage that they can, mm -hmm. really took away from the old school UFO conferences I used to love, where uh, there was really top heavy skeptics and scientists and, and even witnesses that would go up on stage and give really good testimony, great debates. And today, it's nothing but a big circus. Uh, go to any UFO conference today, and it's nothing about selling uh, as much memorabilia as they can, mm -hmm. uh, abductee you know, sessions and, and, and uh, cocktail parties. So it's really, they made a mockery of themselves, and this, this is why the UFO community uh, is not really taken seriously anymore by many scientists. Well, do you ever think the scientific community will ever take the UFO committees uh, seriously? It is. In fact, I am in the works of uh, about two years ago. No, mm -hmm. yeah, two years ago, I had my first UFO conference in Baltimore where I'm, where uh, we had serious scientists come. Yeah. And we had a good turnout. About 200 people came. And I'm actually now the contemplating on having a serious UFO discussion here in Tampa Bay where I'm going to invite uh, credible scientists and uh, maybe a, an astronaut or two and a couple of credible witnesses and do a debate-style panel and stay away from uh, all the other unnecessary circus. And maybe that can at least be uh, a, a starting point uh, for bringing back seriousness to the UFO community. You know, there are some, uh, there are some uh, UFO... Uh, organizers, group organizers, mm -hmm. who I think really understand that what they have here is they have a way to make money and that they're going to take as much as much as they can from whoever they can. You know, they charge exorbitant prices to yeah. get into the place. Then they charge for lectures. Then they charge for workshops. Come on, aren't we there to spread yeah, the news, and even uh, like spread the, the information? Uh, uh, private dinners, yeah. Travis Walton and things like that. That's that is the uh, that's normal business operation, but you're right. They are taking advantage of people. I'm not calling them stupid. I'm not no. calling them weak-minded, but they are taking advantage of a, a particular group of people who want to understand this yep. phenomenon, and and they're just taking advantage of them. As always, my friend, time goes by so fast. I want to thank you so much <laughs> for joining us tonight. We'll have you back on in the future. I promise you that. And Anytime, man. Just give me a call. All right. Listen, take care of yourself. Safe travels. And uh, if anything important comes up that you need to spread the word, get a hold of me. We'll get you on the air as fast as we can. Great. Thank you, sir. Take care, Professor. Exonation, my guest this hour has been Professor Antonio Paris. Here's a couple of websites, planetary-space.org and aerial-phenomenon.org. I'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the Exxon. We're going to be listening to Charles Hall and an interview I did with him because he was in the Air Force and said that he actually knows for a fact that aliens land in Area 52, not Area 51, and that they visit in Las Vegas. 
We'll hear his story on the other side as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Here at Mountain Dew, we'd like to remind you, you got to know what's important and what's not important. Knowing how to tie a tie, not important. Keeping a diary, not important. Trying all the different bold flavors of Mountain Dew, important. Experience the boldest flavors on earth. Do the Dew. At Mountain Dew, we'd like to recognize the number zero for making Mountain Dew Zero Sugar possible. You have no reason not to try it, as in zero. Get it? Crack open an ice-cold Mountain Dew Zero Sugar. It's zero sugar, all Dew. 